Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. But there's actual scientific proof that when we are using our hands in meaningful ways, we're actually building, creating, crafting, kneading bread, digging in the soil. It's setting off signals that go up to our brain until our brains release dopamine, like the happy chemicals. We're literally wired to be moving our hands and creating. It's actually an important part of being human. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, everyone. It is stunning weather at the time of this recording. Emma, I hope you've been able to get outside and enjoy this the last several days. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, it really is. It's the kind of really amazing weather that almost stresses me out in the effect that it's like, (laughs) how am I going to enjoy it out to the max? But it is wonderful. It's a funny side effect of like perfect weather. It is. Because for me, I feel like I have to be out in it. And so I move my work outside when I can. I literally take my computer and sit out in the sun. 
until it stops working because the internet doesn't reach that far. And, you know, I listen to things on my phone as much as I can while walking if I need to be listening to something. Yeah. And so and in a way, it's like almost more relaxing if the weather's bad because you can just relax. Yeah. There is that sense that a rainy day is, you know, a good time to feel okay about being inside. I like to just be outside and enjoy it and not think about doing any work or anything else too. So that's something I strive for as well. Just be outside in it, not doing anything. And just last few days while I've been walking, I have just stopped and sat down on the ground to just look at the leaves. It's amazing. So I'm really excited about the interview that we have today because this guest was one of our very earliest inspirations for Lady Farmer. You remember when we discovered Jill Winger and the Prairie Homestead and we got excited about all the things she was talking about and teaching and we just wanted to learn everything. I think that's back when you were living out here at the farm before you moved to DC. Yeah, I remember she was like a blogger that you followed and you were really excited about hearing her name early on. Yeah. You know, we followed her and, you know, ordered her chicken book and read her blog and got her newsletter and so excited about all her content. And then later on, she was kind enough to endorse our book, The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. So we feel like we've known Jill for a while. But the really fun thing about having this interview coming out now is that we actually got to meet her last month at the Homesteaders of America conference. And it was really, really special to get to say hello in person after following her all of these years. So we're going to talk more about Jill in a minute. But before we do get into today's episode, I know you want to talk about something else, Emma. Yeah, I also want to offer a welcome to anyone who's listening, maybe for the first time, who is here because of Jill, because you might have seen her name in the episode title, and you might love Jill and all of her content in her own podcast. So welcome. If you haven't been a longtime listener, just to reintroduce ourselves, I'm Emma, and this is my mom, Mary, and I live in D.C. My mom lives on a farm outside D.C., and this podcast is our weekly exploration in all things good dirt, whether or not that's literal dirt or figurative dirt. So we're really happy to have you here. And of course, to our longtime listeners, we are so thankful to have you back every single week as well. And you might have heard something like this from us before, but we're getting ready to launch a membership pledge campaign. And this might be also something that you're familiar with other podcasts as something that we're trying. So as you know, we do have a membership platform. It's an online community and it's a very active online community. We're doing lots of stuff in there. And we totally get that you might be a listener who loves a podcast and you want to support, but maybe like an online community isn't your thing. And so we wanted to offer a really easy way for you listeners to support if that's something that you felt you wanted to do without feeling like you had to like be a part of an online community. So sort of that middle ground, sort of equivalent to a Patreon or just any subscription to any content that you might enjoy listening to. So we are launching a membership drive. The idea is that if you sign up during the drive, if you pledge a certain amount in support every month, so this would be a recurring support amount, then you are eligible for all kinds of fun rewards. And we've like designed a really cute tote bag exclusive for pledgers of the Good Dirt podcast. Can't wait to show you that design. And we, of course, will be offering everything that our community platform has to offer, whether or not you want to partake. You don't have to 
to come to the meetings. You don't have to do the things, but everything is on there for you, including we've got some fun extended and behind the scenes content, some fun little extra tidbits from some of our interviews. We've got a little bit more video content for you on that platform. And a really exciting one is that we are offering the opportunity to be a actual producer and have producer status on the podcast, which will be at a certain level. You'll have your name in the show notes, which will be really exciting. And then at the very top, there is executive producer status, which means you will get quarterly meetings with us and you'll have input into the show and the types of guests we have on and all of that. So we're really excited about that. So stay tuned. There'll be much more information coming out on that later. And just know that the reason that we're doing this is because we love this podcast and we want to keep doing it. And because it's a weekly interview show, it's a ton of work for a lot of people. And it actually costs us a good amount of money to produce every week and to bring to you. And so if we had even just a percentage of the listeners able to pledge a certain amount of support every month, we would be able to continue the show and keep it going and have the costs paid for. There's a lot of different ways that podcasts make money. And we have tried a few different ways and we are trying. We do partner with brands, as you might be aware, for outright sponsorship support. But I don't know if you've noticed, but we're really picky about who we work with in that regard. So we are happy to keep collaborating with brands that we really believe in and use ourselves, but we don't want to depend on that to keep the show going. So we love our community and we love our listeners and we really believe in the power of crowd support. It's what helped launch our company, Lady Farmer, in the first place seven years ago. So that means that we are reaching out to you if just a small percent 10% of our listeners were able to contribute in some amount monetarily every month. It would help to keep the show going. So we greatly appreciate that. And if monetary support is not something that you are able to do, also, we completely understand the other thing that really helps us is growing our listeners and our download numbers, because that makes us more attractive to bigger sponsors who are able to support us in bigger ways. So Pulling back the curtain for just a few minutes, lift, uh, you know, under the hood kind of stuff, but it's not really fun and glamorous to talk about. But, you know, that's the good dirt. It's a little dirty. That's what we're here for. And all we care most about is just bringing you really great content and great interviews. This is all so we can literally just keep the show going and pay the folks that work really hard on it with us. Yeah. So with that, mom, I don't know if you have anything to add. I know I just talked for a long time, but yeah. Well said, Emma. Thank you so much. But I do want to add a couple of things. And you touched on this, but I want to emphasize it that someone might listen to this and say, oh, they have sponsorships, they have ads. So that's how they support the show. Well, that's true in part. But I do want to clarify that we are extremely selective about brands and products that we choose to represent on the show. Things come across our radar all the time that we feel like are not the kind of thing that we want to tell our listeners about because our standards are really high and we don't mind admitting that. I mean, that's who we are. And so until we get a whole lot bigger, that aspect of our production here is still a small part of it. This is not to minimize the amazing growth that we have experienced in just actually this last year, year and a half. It's really grown a lot and it will keep growing with your help. 
So that's another thing to think about too. If that's something that you're unable to contribute to monetarily, if you brought five friends to this show, that's it. That's all we need. And also wanted to touch on another thing that we talk a lot about on this podcast. And it's something that we tie into the idea of slow living. And that is having intentionality and purpose out here in the world of the internet and digital content. A lot of things are free and expected to be free, but that doesn't mean those things don't take a lot of resources to happen. And all these entrepreneurs and business people out there doing all this have different ways of putting it all together, but it's not easy. It doesn't just happen. And so if you enjoy the show, yes, you can have it for free. And that's wonderful. We want that to be the case. But if it's something that you value and you think that deserves any amount of your resources that is in time in writing a review or time in urging other people to download it or supporting us through this membership campaign, then we just really, really appreciate it. And we really appreciate your coming through with support to help us make this happen. Super well said, mom. As anyone knows, it's always really awkward asking for money, but truly I don't feel awkward in this moment because I just feel really good about what we have. And I know that it's worth support. And yeah, I just wish everyone would be a little bit more honest too in this realm about how much work things take and how much things cost. And if people are telling you to pay them so that you can make a bunch of money really easy on the internet, think twice. (laughs) It's not super easy and it's not super quick. We luckily have had a really strong support system so far. And that's all we're asking for is a little bit more to help us get to that next realm of just reach and ability to continue the show sustainably, which is the most ironic thing because that this show is less than sustainable at times and not guaranteed like everything. So anyways, moving on from that little discussion back to today's episode, which is really a treat. We're really excited. So as we said, Jill is the founder of Prairie Homestead. And over the last 10 years, she has influenced thousands of people, including us, in rediscovering some of the simpler ways of life, like helping people grow their food and cook healthy meals, raise chickens, bake bread, and so many other things. And her mission is more than just about teaching skills, but it's also about guiding others into slowing down and creating a healthier, more centered, balanced lifestyle, slow living. All of this she talks about in her just recently published book, Old Fashioned on Purpose, Creating a Slower, More Joyful Life. Yes, and we really enjoyed talking to Jill about how she got to where she is today, the realities of her life as a genuine homesteader with all the work and all the responsibilities, and the interesting conundrum of living an old-fashioned life while running an online business. We're here to tell you that if anybody can do it, it's Jill. She's so grounded, genuine, relatable. Talking to her is like talking to someone you've known forever. She's the real deal and we'll be fans forever. So here's Jill Winger, creator of the Prairie Homestead, who's here to tell you, you don't have to live on a farm to create a simpler, more joyful life. So 
My name is Jill Winger, and I am a homesteader and an entrepreneur out here on the wide open Wyoming prairie. I think I'm best known for my OG homesteading blog, The Prairie Homestead. I started it back in 2010, kind of before homesteading was cool. And I've grown up alongside of it, honestly, in both my knowledge of entrepreneurship and homesteading and learning how to connect with people. And so still doing it today, still homesteading on the same property and still helping others learn to do the same. Awesome. And how did you get started doing that? Yeah, so I wasn't raised in a farmer ranch background. I just have always wanted it deeply since I was a very small child. And so I kind of came into the homesteading world through the back door. I came into it, believe it or not, through horses. So horses have always been one of my primary passions. And I moved away from home when I was 18 to pursue a career in the horse industry. And when I was at college doing that, I met my husband, who also was kind of an unconventional thinker. And we knew that our first house, once we got married, we didn't want it to be the typical house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and the minivan. We wanted something a little different. And so we didn't know what that meant, but we knew we had to explore the idea. Long story short, as we started to look for our first home, we needed a piece of land for our horses that we had at the time. We didn't have a big budget. So we started looking at old fixer uppers that no one else would want, you know, the ones far away from town, the ones that were not five minutes away from Walmart. And we stumbled across the property that we actually still live on today. It was a disaster. There was a washing machine in the front yard. All the fences were nasty. All the buildings are nasty, but we could afford it and it had land. And so when we bought that property, I was kind of simultaneously hit with this desire to make it productive. I didn't know what homesteading was. I hadn't heard that term. I didn't have any grand aspirations to that effect, but I just knew that this land was kind of speaking to me and I wanted to make it useful and productive. And so I started to explore what that would be. And that turned into gardens and compost piles and chickens and dairy animals. And yeah, here we are today doing all the things. Do you have any stories to relate about any kind of aha moment you had or any kind of moment of enlightenment about where all this might be going or what inspired you in the beginning? Yeah, there were lots of little sparks of inspiration and knowing. And I've always, I mean, less than more now, but I've always listened to my intuition. And I know when I feel excitement, I know to follow that excitement and that curiosity. I tend to be a curious person. And so I just noticed that whenever I would get abnormally excited about something, it was worth following. And I also noticed that as I started to experiment with these old fashioned things that I was like 24, like no one was doing it then it wasn't cool. There wasn't anyone on Instagram or YouTube talking about it. But I would like figure out how to make biscuits for the first time, or I figured out how to plant the garden or mulch it, I would get so excited. And it felt so amazing. Like I was felt like I was kind of being rewarded by my body for doing it. That kind of led me along the path as I was figuring it out. And I just all I can think about when I think back to those early years was just the nonstop I just was excited over everything. Like I just was like, this is life changing that I can make yogurt and I can make tortillas. And it was so fun to be discovering that for the first time. I remember that feeling way, way back when like in the 90s, when I lived in the suburbs and I remember I ran across a composter at a yard sale. It was one of those big giant drum things. I brought it home and everybody was, what is that? And I was so excited about it. People are laughing at me. You are so excited about what composting? What is that? And people are also kind of like, oh, you're going to have rats come into the neighborhood. And oh, this is, you know, this is not a good idea. And why, why all the things you should not be, there's all the ways I should not be doing this. But <laughs> I, I remember I know exactly what you're talking about, that inside thing of like, this has got me on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know, I've thought about it so much over the years. Does everyone have that? I would like to think that everyone has the ability to be that excited about these things. I don't know, though, like some people I feel like if you don't have the natural excitement for composting, I don't know, can you can you (laughs) cultivate it? I don't know. Maybe some people have it, some people don't, but I get you like you're my people. That's, we're just excited (laughs) over the weirdest things, but I love it. (laughs) So 
Yeah. And I also remember when Emma emailed me or texted me or something, an article that you'd written on all the things you can do with eggshells. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so exciting. So exciting. Yeah. So, yes, that, yes. you know, brings me around to what a huge inspiration you've been for me over the years, even before we got the farm. But, you know, we've been out here in Maryland on this little farm. It's just seven acres and it's, you know, certainly not a ranch or, you know, not terribly productive in terms of like commercially at all. It's just, you know, we just live here and I call it my playground. So you're certainly a mentor for me. And I'm just curious to know how this old-fashioned homesteading life, you know, doing things the way things were once done. How does that intersect with running like a digital business, you know, with people all over the world looking at you and your old-fashioned life and your, your huge presence on all these various outlets? So just tell us about that intersection and what things do you do yourself? Where do you have help? There's so much to this. How does it feel? Yeah, it's a very funny juxtaposition because I love both. I love the old fashioned. I love being out in my garden. I need it to keep me grounded and centered. I also love marketing and I love product creation and I love connecting with people digitally. And I have stopped trying to reconcile how they can fit together because I'm like, I think it's just both pieces of me have to exist at the same time. And it's funny every once in a while, and this actually happened a week or two ago, a lady on Instagram, I don't know who she is. She's just random person. She thought she had caught me. She's like, aha. You say you're a homesteader, but you're using a phone to be on Instagram. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yeah. Linda, you caught me. Like, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm well aware of the, you know, people would say it's hypocritical. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's modern life of being able to have both and weave them together. Can technology get off balance? Absolutely. But I think if we can keep it in check, there's lots of good there. Obviously, I wouldn't have connected with you guys or you wouldn't have found the blog if it hadn't had a computer. So I feel like there's so much good to be had. But yeah, it's it does make for an interesting life when you do weave them together. You know, I'm out doing chores and sometimes also doing a business call. Like I, I just had, I talked to a business mentor of mine a few minutes ago before we jumped on and there was a rooster in the background and he's like, is that a rooster? <laughs> so yeah. we've had those calls. Yes. <laughs> I love, I love the mix. I love being able to go to like a high level entrepreneurial mastermind with my boots and jeans and be like, I can play with the big boys and I can also go back and milk a cow and be perfectly comfortable in both worlds. So that works for me. Sometimes it's definitely tricky to juggle all the pieces, you know, like it's canning season and I'm launching a book and I'm trying to keep up with podcast obligations. And so having all of those things sometimes makes my calendar a little bit hectic, but I don't know, I'm kind of a fast paced person. I'm a high energy person. And so it just works in a weird, bizarre way, I suppose. It's just really unique to our times. There, It's unprecedented. So, you know, when people ask you or us, you know, like, you know, how are you doing this? You know, you're living on a farm, you're living close to the land, but, you know, you're communicating with people all over. It just speaks to like, you know, where we are in, in evolution. And it's amazing, really. I think it's easy to talk about maybe how incongruous it is. But maybe it's not in Congress at all. Maybe it's just like where we are in time and we just can embrace it and take advantage of it. And I think the way to do that is look how many people benefit from the things you're teaching and inspiring people to do. So Jill, I'm curious to know, I know you and your husband work closely together. What do you all do yourselves? I mean, I imagine you divide up chores and I don't know how old your kids are, but maybe they're of a nature they can do some things too. But what do you all do yourselves? And where do you have help in the digital part of your life as well? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I love to talk about that because people assume I'm doing it all myself and I'm not. I have a team and we've built that team over the years. So I think it's really important that no one's like looking at me going, I don't know, she does it all because I'm not doing it all. I have a team. So the kids are honestly, I have a 13, 10 and seven year old. They're doing most of the barn chores these days. My, They even handled all the milking this summer. We had cow and milk and then had bottle calves. So they would milk the cow and give the bottle calves milk. And so they handle that, which is a huge help. Honestly, they were gone for a week this summer at grandma's house. And I, I was doing all the chores. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is taking up a lot of time. So it's definitely a family effort in terms of like the help we have around the homestead, because we have a ranch kind of arm of our business now with commercial cattle and we're selling beef. We have a hired man who helps run that part. And Christian and I are still involved, but he's doing the day-to-day kind of, you know, just checking things and coordinating things, helping us get the beef shipped out on a weekly basis. And we have two interns that we had this summer and they're going to stay a little bit further into the fall. And they just are kind of jack of all trades. They'll do everything from if I'm like, I have some graphics I need to be making for a blog post, I'll put one of them on that. I actually have one in making tomato sauce. We have a whole bunch of garden tomatoes and I I, I was canning last week and then I, now I'm busy this week. So I'm like, Hannah, go grind up the tomatoes and let's get some sauce going. So they definitely fill in the gaps. I think having two interns plus a hired man is a little bit more than we need at this exact moment, but it's they're all great people. And so we're figuring we're just going to you know keep them around as long as we can because it's always nice to have extra help. And then I do have a full-time virtual assistant. I've worked with her for almost a decade and she handles, you know, all the things that are just kind of the monotonous tasks of running a business or the ones that just take up a lot of time, like answering emails and making sure customers get their digital products and doing outreach. And she helps me with Pinterest and scheduling blog posts. And so she's kind of my right-hand woman and runs all of that. So What I try to do, what I've learned over the years, because it is hard for someone like me to give up control of business stuff, right? That's always a tension is I keep the things that need my touch, whether it's my voice or my the way I write and my kind of zone of genius and that creativity and then outsource as much as I can of the rest. So you write your own blogs and how much of it do you do your own graphics and stuff or do you have someone... Yeah. So the blogs, I've actually outsourced that a little bit more. I kind of have two parts of my blog. I have one that's more of like essays, the kind of prairie philosophy. That's all me because that's just my thoughts. It's hard. I don't want to outsource that. On the more practical kind of step-by-step blog posts, I usually have whether an intern or my assistant, they'll kind of help me draft those and then I'll put my touch on them. So I'll be like, okay, here's my, you know, here's my technique on how do I can tomatoes and I'll just kind of like throw it at them and then they'll organize it and make it nice and then put it up. Graphics in terms of like, my products and my sales pages, that's usually all me because I'm pretty picky on how that flows. There's a psychology to that. It's Pinterest graphics or blog posts. I have my assistants help with those things. And then as far as social media goes, I have an assistant scheduling out Facebook, but I do everything on Instagram just because that platform I think needs a little more of a personal touch. People can tell when it's just mass scheduled content versus the actual person talking. So it's so true. We've tried. It doesn't work. I know I've tried so many times I've tried and I've had coaches come in and like outsource this and do this and I'll do the method and I'm like but it doesn't work because people just know and the online space is so noisy right now if you want that's what people ask me all the time well how do I get noticed I'm like you have to be real and authentic and vulnerable and you can't outsource that you have to be saying things in your unique way that no one else can say and that's how you get people to consume your content I think yeah on that platform specifically yes well and all the any of the platforms that are built to capture as much of our attention as possible. Right, right. Yes. There's also that. Yeah. The ones who designed to addict us (laughs) as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any specific things in your toolbox for like boundaries with 
the tech stuff? Do you find it an issue or have you, have you found that balance? You know, are you, do you find yourself out in the field, like craning over your phone and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm always fighting it. And I think, you know, they are designed, like you said, to be so addictive. Like we're literally fighting our own biology to keep it in check. So it's a constant battle. One thing I have done is I've removed as many of the social apps off my phone that I can. So I don't have, I don't have a Facebook app. I don't have an email app. I have to have an Instagram app because you kind of have to do that through your phone and just trying to keep that to a minimum. And then one thing I find is if just try to keep myself separated from my phone as much as I can, which during some seasons is easier said than done. Like I love listening to music and podcasts, especially when I'm out in the garden or doing things like monotonous chores. But then there's also times where I'm trying to just let my mind be still and enjoy that solitude. So I try to keep that mixed in as much as possible. It, you know, yeah, there are definitely times where I go outside where I'm like, I'm gonna have a really relaxing uh, night in the greenhouse. And I end up back and forth on my phone the whole time. And it ruins the entire vibe of the night. So yeah, it's a constant, it's a constant battle, even for someone like me who we, I like old fashioned things, but it's a part of my business. And I can't quit. I can't just get rid of a cold turkey. So I have to juggle it. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm just going to, I'm going to go out in the garden. I'm not going to take my phone. I don't want it. You know, I just want to be out there without it. And I get out there and there'll be some great thing. I wish I had it so I could get the picture of it. Yes. (laughs) I know. I've had that happen too, where the kids will be like, mom, the dog's standing on his head, juggling balls. Where's the phone? And I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) I know. Of course it's in the house. (laughs) Because you wanted to be separated from your phone. Yeah. That happens to me. So sometimes I find myself going phone or no phone, phone or no phone. And the other thing is, you know, sometimes I'd like to listen to music, like you said, or, you know, another podcast or something. And it's just, it's kind of weird, but very intentional on the part of the creators that it's all there. It's all in one package. So like, if you're going to listen to music, you're also, you've also got Instagram there and you've also got your telephone. You've also got your text. So it's all there. So you either leave it all behind or you've got it all with you. Unless you have the old iPod where you just, it was just music. Oh yeah. Just music. I know. And there's some of the like fancy phone, like my, my daughter, my 13 year old, she has a flip phone because I'm like, you need to be able to call us because she's out and about more. But I'm like, I don't want you to have social media and stuff at that age. And so I look at her flip phone. I'm like, that's really appealing because there's nothing tempting on it. But then I'm like, I also do like, I do like podcasts. Like, I don't feel like podcasts are wrong, obviously, you know, and I love music. Music really helps me relax. And so I'm like, oh, it's this. But like you said, Mary, when you're out there listening to a podcast, it's really easy to go. I'm going to Google this real fast. Or so-and-so texted me. I'm going to check email real fast. I think, oh, oh I, my, in your brain, does your brain ever do that thing where it's like, you get this urgent need to look something yes. up <laughs> just for no reason. Well, and we've it's been like, trained that that's like a thing we can do. I'm like, I can look up the best varieties of heirloom tomatoes a different day. I don't have to do it this exact second, but it feels like the most urgent thing on the planet. It's just, you got to look it up right now. And then this happens. You think, no, I'm not going to do it right now. I'm going to wait until I'm inside of my computer working. And then I'll get in there and I'll forget what it was I wanted to look up. Yeah. Yeah. That was so And then it bothers you. Yes. (laughs) I know. And I had to know it right then. But guess what? The world kept turning and I didn't look up. Yes. You survived. I know. Our brains like to play those tricks. That's something that I love talking about with other creators in this space, because I think that we talk a lot, particularly in our space of, you know, homesteading, creativity, cooking, slow living. What we're teaching, per se, is becoming a producer instead of a consumer, right? Like doing all these things yourself. And yet the way that we get these things across is by feeding things for other people to consume. So it's just, it feels like a weird I know relationship, but I think that there's a healthy way to do it too. Like there's just a certain amount of balance 
I think that makes it all, you know, it's not, it's not like good or bad. Like this is not like a moral thing. I do worry myself that I spend too much time consuming content and it sucks out my energy. Right. And it's like, it's the same, like, do we need to be honest with ourselves that we're, if we're addicted? Absolutely. But also like knowing, like you said, we're wired to want the dopamine hit. Like we're, and like, it's same with like, I heard someone say the other day that fat and sugar never appear together in nature, but that's why when we have our fatty, sugary foods in our modern industrial food paradigm, like it's almost impossible for our bodies to resist because like, it's just like something we're not used to. And it's like, we just can't get enough. So it's like literally fighting brain signals. And I feel it's the same way with the dopamine hits off the phone. So like you said, it takes so much energy and, and could we develop the willpower out? Sure. We could become disciplined enough and have Instagram on my phone, but never look at it. But <laughs> It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really- Especially when you feel like, you know, it's time for a reel. <laughs> and this is a great moment. But yes. anyway, this is all sort of leading into the next thing I wanted to talk about how, you know, homesteading obviously is a lot of work just on its own without the marketing of it. So what does sustainability mean in your life and your work? And what is where does sustainability fit in like on your homestead? And where does it fit in and with your family life and drawing those boundaries and also how this feeds into you that, you know, the book you just wrote old fashioned on purpose, because this, I think that sort of speaks a lot to boundaries and intentionality. Yes. Absolutely. That's such a great question. And I've gone through different stages over the years. I think there was a time and I think we all do this maturing into our trades and our crafts, where I was like, more is more. So I would say I was doing all the things like YouTube channel and all the products and all the blog posts and all the social media platforms. And a couple of years ago, I was like, I don't like any of this right now. Like I got I got really burned out. And I'm like, I'm just tired of it. I felt very much obligated to be pumping out weekly, like YouTube videos killed me. Like, and that's why I don't people like when are you coming back to YouTube? And I'm like, probably never because I don't enjoy YouTube. I don't I don't watch videos personally. And I don't enjoy the platform and I don't enjoy creating videos. And I felt like I had to be this like little dispensary of homestead, how to perfect practical advice every week. And I'm like, I'm not feeling it. And I started to really resent it. And so I had to get honest with myself. And I had that fear of like, but if I stop, then I'm gonna like my business is toast. So I had to like work through all of those scarcity limiting beliefs and things. But ultimately, I think what helps me sustain and what I kind of discovered, I went dark for a while, I stopped emailing, I stopped posting on social, I stopped YouTube videos, I just was like, I need to pull back and see if I even still want to continue this because I'm kind of I just don't like it. And what I what I discovered after that period of self discovery is I do love creating, I am a creator, I love creating things that are useful and inspiring to other people, but I have to do it in a way that's true and authentic to me. It has to be satisfying to my own curiosity and be lighting me up as I'm creating for others. And so when I that's when I like wrote old fashioned on purpose, I loved that process. It was so fun and so fulfilling. You know, even if no one reads it, and it doesn't make any splash in the world, I got so much out of it. So it was it was worthwhile. And I've realized, like I had to pull back from just pumping out content for the sake of content, and be really intentional into creating what feels meaningful to me. And I found oddly enough, when it's meaningful to me, it's more meaningful to my audience. And so I find when I stay in that space, it feels sustainable and joyful. When I start to get in that factory, like obligation mode, that's when I like, I can't do this forever. I want to be done. Does that answer your question? Yeah, sounds familiar too. (laughs) Yeah, you've just hit on something that resonates with me very, very deeply. That's a better way to say it. And that is that space. And it's really rather... I don't want to say the word narrow, but it's like, it's it's like this zone and it's very easy to get out of it one way or the other. But in that zone, just as you've just been describing, 
you're in there and, oh, this is fun. This is exciting. I get to talk to this person. I get to write about this. I want to share this. It feels good. That's great. And that lifts you up. And then, but it very easily gets to, oh, you have to do this now. You have to do that. And then that's when it starts feeling heavy and, you're, you know, you start feeling draggy about it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I love that you feel that too, because you're right. It does come across. And guess what? If you're the creator and you're feeling that way and you're living that way, it doesn't matter whether other people get it or not. I mean, it's great if they do, but ultimately you're just, I, you know, I'm just here having a great time. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yep. But it's, it's delicate. It's a delicate dance. It is. Related to that, I have a question more like on the homesteading side of things. Just if you, if there's any like specifics that you can speak to over the years of what are things that you maybe don't do anymore because they got to be too much and you don't do that the old fashioned way or vice versa. Yeah, there's lots of little things that I think it's really easy, especially with the state of the homestead platform, you know, so many different influencers to feel like you have to do XYZ to check the boxes to be considered a homesteader. And I would encourage anyone listening, like you, you can make it fit your needs. Do not feel like you have to live up to this ideal because that's such a trap. You will feel very resentful if you're just checking boxes. But yeah, I have done lots of rule breaking over the years. There are times like people assume we have a cow and milk 24 seven, you know, 365. And I don't like there are times when actually I have a cow and milk right now. I have not milked her in several months because I just have left the calf with her. We milked a bunch this summer and then life got busy. And I'm like, you know what? She's fine. The calf's fine. The calf's growing good. And she can just nurse her baby. And I'm not going to pull her in every morning to milk. There are lots of things I used to grow in the garden out of obligation that we wouldn't eat. And I would end up giving them to the chickens or the pigs. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Stop it. And so now instead of having all the vegetables in the whole official garden homesteader list, I just grow the vegetables that we're going to use the most of the tomatoes, potatoes, onions, stop growing beets because we never ate the beets. We don't like beets. So why was I growing beets? You know, things like that. And there's little things in the kitchen. There's some stuff I'm hardcore and making from scratch. And there's other things I'm like, it's not worth my time. Like, a big one for me is tortillas. We eat a lot of tortillas and I can make homemade tortillas all day long. I know how to make them. The amount of time it takes for me to make tortillas doesn't feel worth it for how many tortillas we eat. And so I'm like, I, I buy I buy tortillas. I, I could make them, but I choose to buy them. Now there's other things that I don't buy. Like I made ketchup last night and canned it and I make broth and I, you know, I make biscuits and I, I don't want to buy home uh, tomato sauce. I'm always going to make my own tomato sauce, but there's just little things I'm like not lighting me up. So we're just going to go with store-bought and not sweat it. Awesome. I love that so much. There's my confessions, my, my <laughs> yeah. deep dark confessions. <laughs> this is going to be titled Joe Winger Confesses. Yeah. Yes. Click, click, click. We series. caught you. Yeah. We're catching yes, you here. You caught me red-handed. She uses a phone and she buys tortillas. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, no. I want to ask you, you've been in this space a good while. You, you know, you're one of the veterans, you know. How do you see that this has shifted over the last decade? Of the idea of homesteading, the people that are participating. I know it's grown enormously. Yeah, it's grown a ton, which has been awesome because now things like sourdough bread and canning are just, they, they're almost normal now in many circles, whereas before it was so bizarre. So there's more knowledge. There's more people doing it, which is fabulous. The one thing I don't love about the growth, which is, I mean, there's always pros and cons, but it's a more competitive space for the content creators. And I see one of the ways the content creators are trying to stay on top of the heap is by kind of turning the lifestyle into fantasy land a little bit. And I've talked about this on my podcast somewhere. It's like turned from, you know, when I started, it was a bunch of moms, you know, wearing t-shirts with tomato stains and babies spit up on them, trying to figure out how to make better bread in their kitchens. And that was very, it was very real and authentic. And now I feel like 
there is an expectation in the homestead community, especially Instagram, where you need to be wearing period appropriate clothing, white linen dresses, you need to live in a $5.2 million farmhouse that's perfectly designed and have baby lambs in your sink with daffodils around their neck (laughs) in order to be teaching homestead content. And I'm like, I mean, it's pretty cool if that's your jam, but I'm like, it's not real. It's not real life. And so I I get a little bit grouchy with the kind of cottage core aesthetic that gets so over the top. Again, nothing wrong with it, but I'm like, I think it's giving people this idea that I'm not a homesteader unless I'm wearing Lori Ingalls Wilder dresses and flouncing around with daisies in my hair. And I'm like, no, you can, there's lots of ways to do it. I don't want people to think it has to be aesthetically pleasing in order to count. In fact, a lot of the, like a lot of the most operational and efficient homesteads and farms are like really not aesthetically pleasing. They're not aesthetic. I mean, I always think of Joel Salatin's place. His place is beautiful. He has resurrected that land, but he doesn't have like, he's not Instagram worthy barns and chicken tractors, right? They're functional and practical. And I really appreciate about him. But I mean, he knows his farm animals and his feeding though, like inside and out, just might not be pretty in the process. Yes. We visited there. We we had a similar observation. We were like, yeah, this is not Instagram land, but man, is it functional? (laughs) Yeah. It's so functional. Yeah. 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 That's so funny. So. I want you to talk about your book, whatever you want to say about it. Tell us about it and the writing of it. You say you enjoyed that process so much. and Yeah, it was fun. I went a lot deeper with the book than I had with other content previously. Like the cookbook I had published prior was fun, but it was mostly recipes and recipe testing, of course. And so the, the book was just different. This or this book was a different experience in terms of the research and the writing. Pretty intense. Like a lot of early mornings. I pretty much sat in this chair in the office for six months and didn't do a whole lot else. We just kind of cleared the calendar and I really just focused on the writing. So it was intense, but I, I did enjoy it. There, I mean, there were days I didn't enjoy it, right? There were days where I'm like, this is horrible. But overall, the overarching feeling was one of enjoyment. But I wanted it to be different than many of the Homestead books on the market. I wanted it to be really distilling down the principles versus just giving some simple how-tos. And so I found myself after homesteading for so long, kind of sitting with this tension that ultimately became the premise for the book. And that was, you know, I know homesteading is so valuable for me. It's changed my life for the better in every way. It's opened up my mind to so many principles and concepts and just improved every part of my life. But I also know that not everybody can move to 60 acres and get a milk cow, nor do they want to. And so I've been trying to balance those two ideas. Like I know these principles are not just for homesteader people, they're for humans. Like these are human concepts that we need in our culture to keep us grounded. But how can we bring them to everyone who's not going to do what I did and move to Wyoming or, you know, have this extreme lifestyle? And so we, we, I kind of broke it down into eight concepts, eight pillars of what I call the old fashioned on purpose life and just inspired people of how they can weave those in. And I brought in a lot of history and science because I wanted folks to understand it's not just me saying these things are important. There's a lot of data that backs it up, that we need to be connected to the soil, that we need small community in our life, that we need to be involved in our food and using our hands. And so I just wanted to kind of make a case for that. So it was, it was a fun process. I'm excited for people to finally read it. Can you give us a little, a little taste of it, like a a little tidbit or example of something that you went really in depth with on there? Yeah. So one of my favorite chapters was when I talk about working with your hands and I found some really interesting data from multiple areas, but my favorite piece was from a doctor named Dr. Kelly Lambert. She's studies the brain. She's written a number of books, but the one I referenced was called Lifting Depression. And she actually has empirical data that shows that our brains are are connected to our hands through what she calls the effort-driven reward circuit. 
And in essence, I mean, I think people like you and I, we know that because we can feel it, but there's actual scientific proof that when we are using our hands in meaningful ways, beyond just tapping our phones or pressing the, the button on a remote, we're actually building, creating, crafting, kneading bread, digging in the soil. It's setting off signals that go up to our brain and tell our brain to release dopamine, like the happy chemicals. So we're literally wired to be moving our hands and creating, and that's why it feels good to us. It's not our imagination that that's why you feel satisfied after you plant something or you make a loaf of bread. And so I was able to bring in some of those data points that I, I think, again, people like you and I, we know those those feelings, but I, I just love having that. Okay, I, I prove it. I can prove it now. Like there's actually proof that not it's not just fun for homesteaders like us. It's actually an important part of being human. So just try to encourage people throughout the book to re-examine those kind of often overlooked old-fashioned ideas and see them for the value that they can bring to our modern lives. Yes. And I love that. That's, that's just so fascinating. It's also a reminder that these things we call modern, the decidedly not old fashioned way of doing things. It's all so recent. It's so very recent when you look at the, you know, the scale of human development and evolution and the development of society, these things that now we consider like we do them every day and they're just, you know, just automatic. It's such a part of our daily lives and daily moments these things are just a flash in the pan of where we've come as humans. So these things that seem old are so much a part of us. And, you know, where have we just, we certainly haven't forgotten because it's in our cells. And as you just said, you know, our brain kind of craves these things, you know? So yeah, this is fascinating idea. And I, I just love the way you set it apart from just another, another cookbook or another homesteading book or another how-to book. That's just, it's brilliant, Jill. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I Thank love you. it. Yeah. I'm excited. You know, I've, been sitting with it for two plus years. His books are such a long process, but exciting and scary to be like, oh my gosh, everyone else is going to read it now. So it's fun. And when does it officially come out? September 26th, 2023. When this airs, it'll be after that official published time. So people will be able to read it now, which is exciting. Another thing you threw out there in terms of your book was you mentioned community. I wanted to hear you speak about that a little bit because I think community is an aspect of modern homesteading that maybe back in the original days, you know, mid-19th century, community was much less because homesteaders were really on their own and like isolated. But now community seems to be so much a part of modern homesteading. Yeah. One of the pillars is community because I feel like that's one of the most old-fashioned things that we can do. And I actually found a lot, I mean, I know it's different from area to area, but I found some really interesting evidence that actually I think homesteaders of old were maybe better at community than we are now in terms of, yeah, like even our area, we live in a brutal climate and there were a lot of homesteaders here around the turn of the century. You know, they were five, 10 miles apart sometimes, and they had horses and wagons, but they put so much effort into getting together, you know, not every day, but you know, weekends, holidays, they had dances, they had speech contests, they had parties, they had ice cream socials, they, they were constantly getting together. I, I read one account, there was a little church a ways away from where I live and a family from my little neighborhood traveled 11 miles one way by wagon with seven children to go to church every Sunday, just because I think they knew the importance and they craved that human connection. So they had so much more sacrifice to go hang out with other people and to be around other humans. I think that it was a honestly a bigger part of their life than it is for us now, where it's almost so accessible thanks to social media, we don't value it. And I also think, you know, of course, what we're the connections we're getting with our phones, they can be good. And I've made some wonderful friendships online, but they still can never replace face to face, shoulder to shoulder connection and working on things together in person. And so yeah, I like I really had an, a fun time exploring those concepts and just kind of looking historically how much that's changed over the years. Yeah, it's a really interesting feeling. Have you heard the word parasocial? It's like the way that we feel 
close to people that we know online, even if we've like never talked to them, like the joy you feel and like a person you don't know online having a baby. It's like, yeah, totally. And that's a real thing. Yeah. That's a super real real thing. I don't know if it's a new thing that's like only specific to social media or if there's ways in which I guess the best comparison is like the way that we feel towards celebrities. Right. Because we feel like we know them because we, we, we can consume their life in a way. And so, and, and with social media, we've sort of all become our own little, our own little celebrities and the people we follow are celebrities to us. But I think about that a lot in the way that it's parasocial, that engagement that we're getting, not all the time, as you said, sometimes you really truly are having like uh, reciprocal exchanges with folks. But um, I don't know. I just think it's something to be, not, again, not good or bad, but something to be really aware of. And it's just been so crazy. We have this online community and I guess we've been doing it like two, two and a half years now. And just recently, I've been noticing like at our online gatherings, like these people we've been gathering on just on Zoom once a month for like two years. And I'm like, I feel so close to these people. <laughs> They're like, yes. I know so many yes. things about their lives. And it's just so amazing. Like just what's showing up regularly with other people, even if it is on the computer. Something like Zoom is so unprecedented and we can't look back and say, oh, this is the effect Zoom had a hundred years ago. We can't do that. It's all new. We're all just in, in, in a new space and what COVID did. And one thing I am curious about regarding community was, you know, years ago when people were isolated by miles, if they had crop failures or whatever, were they close enough to people where they would survive? Like if you were 10, 20 miles away from somebody and there was a big snowstorm and you didn't have anything to eat just from the sheer physical isolation. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think there was, I mean, there was definitely hardships to it. You know, like you said, if the if blizzard came through or you, you know, if you fell down and broke your leg, it could be a week before someone comes by. So that's not good. That's not great. But I also, especially because there's some really interesting history around the single woman homesteaders who moved out West at the turn of the century. That was like a total thing because women could get land. That was one of the few places they could have autonomy. Those girls were tough, like tough. They were out there by themselves doing it all. And they would kind of put their claims within five-ish miles, five to 10 miles of each other. And so they could check up on each other. So there was that dynamic too, where that's not close to us, but that was close-ish for them. But I mean, yeah, there was definitely still risk when you don't have phones and easy access to those things. So it's, it's fascinating to think about. So that's like a whole nother book, Jill. The women homesteaders. Yes, I'll do a deep, I do a deep historical dive on the next one. That's That's fascinating. I have a question sort of related to this with your family specifically and your kids, I guess, remind me of the timeline, but has this been their whole life? So is this, is this normal to them? And do they know that it's special and do you see them or are they even old enough to know if they, will they continue homesteading or is there any hint of I want to move to New York City and run away from this. And do you, does it is that important to you? You know, how do you feel about that? I, I'm just curious in the family unit from someone who's been doing this so legit for so long. Yeah, they have been in it their whole lives. So we bought the homestead two years before we had our first child. And so I remember the fir- the day we brought her home from the hospital, we took her outside in the barn and did chores with her. So that's been very much their whole life. I do think they know what they have because I was raised without it. I always wanted the rural life. I didn't have it. And so I, my husband's the same. So we've been pretty communicative and saying, you guys, this, you live in a unique life and this is special. You know, here's how other people live and it's not wrong necessarily, but it's different. And I want you to understand the differences and I want you to understand why we do what we do, whether it's why we eat differently or why we structure our life differently or why we are entrepreneurs and all that. So they're pretty well aware as it stands right now, they don't want to leave. Like whenever we go to, t- to big cities or big towns, we're like, mom, I don't want to, I never would live in a place like this. I never would live in a place like this. So will I hold them to that? 
know if they decide that they're going to go have the grand adventure in New York City, I will totally respect that. I hope they stay close to their roots, not necessarily on my property, but I hope they can stay close to nature and just, you know, where their food comes from. And I know they'll always have that foundation moving forward, even if they do end up in a big, big city someday. So it's been really fun to watch them grow into it. And just the different stages of them on the farm has been pretty rewarding. Yeah, well, I'm sure that your excitement about it and the fact that it's special to you and you feel really lucky to live that life obviously rubs off on them. I want, I'm curious about the kids who like, I don't know, like the nature, it's kind of a nature versus nurture question, right? Like, is it the children themselves growing up that they just decide that they like that or don't like that? Or is it truly if you have a good experience living that way, that that's the way? I don't know. Yeah, I've wondered that too. And people ask me like, I have a teenager and they hate it. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I wish I had a grand prescription, but I don't because I only have my children to go off of. And I feel like maybe I just got lucky. Maybe they just are wired like that. And they just think it's great. And if I had a different set of genetics, they would be like, this is horrible. And I want to leave as soon as I can. But I don't know, I we have done things in a way I to try to help them see the joy in work, I made sure they're they're getting dopamine and achievement and accomplishment feelings and the tasks they're doing. And they see how my, my husband and I enjoy work, work is not a bad word at our house. And I think having that frame from the beginning has been helpful in helping them see you know, this isn't drudgery, this is joyful. Sure, there's days where it's you know, cold or miserable, or we have to just tough it out. But I think maybe that's a piece of it, perhaps. Yeah, you're lucky that you came to it before you had kids so that you could do the whole kid raising things during it. You know, my kids were already grown by the time we discovered this and we don't do it nearly to the extent that you do it. I mean, I belong to a CSA. I don't grow my own vegetables. I just grow what the heck I want. That is okay. <laughs> yes, totally fine. Yeah. No shame there. Yeah, like tomatoes yeah. are kind of, you know, they're messy and, and I get it. Yes. Millions of them through my CSA. So that's fine. <laughs> Never in need of a tomato, let me tell you. Yeah. And if you can, if you can outsource some of that, I, I say, go for it. Like that's self-sufficiency can be such a misnomer that you have to do it all yourself. And I, I don't really buy into that. I think community is important. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's where the community aspect really comes in big for me is we're supporting this small farm that, you know, that's their livelihood is the CSA. So yeah, we can help them do what they want to do because that's what they do. I don't, I don't want to be out there messing around with tomatoes necessarily. Are so. there home study, homegrown things that you outsource like other than store-bought tortillas? <laughs> like that you yeah. could do yourself. Um, that you could <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's definitely seasons where I'm I'm buying milk for sure. Are you like I must get farm milk, or do you get like grocery store milk? Oh, getting into <laughs> get, dangerous territory. <laughs> I when I can get good farm milk, I will buy it. Yeah. There are times when I don't have the time because it's like far away, right? I have to drive. Sometimes I buy grocery store milk. You know, not ideal, but I'm like when we have raw milk, I'm like, you drink as many glasses as you want, like just go through it. And when it's the store-bought pasteurized, I'm like, let's not like guzzle it. Like let's use it in a baking or whatever when needed. I'm like, let's not just drink it and drink it. Cause I don't, you know, love the pasteurization, but no, I will buy it from the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. I will. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is what we love about you, Jill. You're not afraid to like, just not be perfect about it. Yeah. <laughs> balance. The balance. Yeah. Are there things of a different category that you are like sure. proud of the source, but you don't do yourself? Or do you do all that yourself that you can? If I had more, Wyoming's weird because we don't have a, our local food culture is growing, but it's slow. We're way behind like what you would have back East or, or elsewhere. So if I could find better resources for some of that, I would. Like if I could find a good local cheese person, I wouldn't really probably make my own cheese. I might play with it because it's fun. It's fun to play with, but I wouldn't be like, gotta make the cheese, but I don't have a local cheese person. So you do make all your own cheese? Well, 
hard cheeses are hard. <laughs> it's been a learning curve. So we have some that turn out good and some that don't. And when I have gaps, I buy it. But yeah, I'm trying to think if I had more consistent farmers markets, like our farmers markets kind of a, a bummer because they halt, they ship the produce in from elsewhere. The produce has stickers on it. Like I'm like, why am I paying more to say it's from the farmers market when I know you hauled it off the same truck as Safeway? So yeah, if there was more local stuff, I would have no shame in buying tomatoes or buying pickling cucumbers. But right now I don't have a lot of great sources for those or consistent sources. So I usually, I'm still growing that kind of stuff now. I mean, you have to drive a long way to a town, right? Yes. And that's the other part. Like I did a CSA for a while, but having to drive to town every week on a certain time, like almost killed me. So it was easier. I'm like, you know what? It's actually easier for me just to plant that kind of stuff in the garden. I hate driving. I hate knowing I have to go to town at certain times. Like that is my least favorite thing. So it's less painful for me to just grow it if I can versus having to coordinate a million pickups. Now, if someone was close and lived, you know, more closer to a population center, that might not be the as big of a deal. But for me, it's like, it's not fun. So with that being said, what is your community like? And how do you find community? Yeah, so we live about 30 minutes away from us north and south, we have bigger communities, like where we'd go grocery shopping or whatever, or doctor's appointments, things like that. The one that's closest to us about nine miles away is a tiny town. It's 175 people. It's on been on a decline for a while. And so we kind of just ignored it, to be perfectly honest. When we first bought our homestead here, I was like, eh, not interested. I'm going to just keep to myself. And then a couple of years ago, we were like, you know, our homestead's grown. We've experienced success in various areas. And it feels kind of selfish to just be like, have our blinders on, ignoring every, everything else around us. I'm like, I think we could bring some gifts to this community or, you know, kind of share the wealth a little bit in our skills. So we have been way more intentional about investing in the community. And it's been such a rewarding process, messy for sure. And days where I'm like, oh, humans, I just don't understand them, but really rewarding. And and people ask a lot about how they can cultivate community. For us, it's just you got to dig in. Remember, they're not going to be like you necessarily. Like, I don't live in a homesteading commune. Very, I don't even really know people who homestead like us. Like, I don't, I know maybe a handful of people with milk cows that are miles away from me. Like we, I don't live in a community of exactly like-minded people, but continuing to put ourselves out there and to participate, there's a lack of participation in our culture. People just don't participate in things and being willing to lead the charge in some areas. And we bought a little restaurant, which not saying that's the right path for everyone, but that felt right for us. And that has allowed us to assimilate into the community more. So you run the restaurant? I have a manager. We have a manager and staff. Yeah. I'll go in, you know, a couple times a week and check things and help here and there. And do they serve your meat? They do serve our beef. Yes. That's so cool. Restaurants are a whole animal. So that's challenging, but really good just to be able to have that connection and just different, expanding a different part of ourselves. So yeah, it's good. I can't speak enough about community. I'm, I'm such a fan, even on the times where it, it's messy, it's hard, but it's worth it. I do think that speaking as an entrepreneur also, and I imagine many people that are listening are creative in some way and entrepreneurial in some way, that is certainly a way to connect with people. That's definitely how I find a lot of community, other people doing things. Well, Jill, what does slow living mean to you? I think I mean, there's so many ways to define that. But I think to me, it's kind of about moving through life with intention. My life definitely, I think you'd struggle to classify it as slow. I actually like it to be fast. I like to have lots of moving pieces, but there is the element. I would still call it a slow lifestyle because I am thinking about what I'm doing. I'm bringing in those grounding practices with awareness of that just keep me centered and that keep me connected to nature and to the world around me. That's what slow living means to me. And I think it's possible even in the middle of a faster paced, full modern life, you can have pieces of that. 
definitely. Along the same lines, what does good dirt mean to you? Now we call our podcast the good dirt in it. The good dirt means different things to different people. So what does it mean to you? Well, just coming from my own personal experience the last year, I've been super nerding out on soil and learning more about the microbes and the fungi and how everything's connected and all, you know, just I've never used chemicals in my garden anyway, but now really starting to understand when you do spray stuff on it, how it damages what's going on in the, in the life inside. And I just get so just completely nerdy basically over it. So when I think of good dirt, I think of living soil that is full of a community of microbes and organisms and it's alive. So that's probably based more on my perception and all the things I've been reading lately, but that's what I think of. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> and I've been following closely, you know, a few years ago, you reported on that experience you had with the hay and it's complicated because it was sprayed in the field that the cattle or the horses foraged on and it doesn't hurt them, but it passes through and it, it showed up as killing your garden. And then recently it popped up again. Is this true? Did I see something about it that? It did. Yes. And it wasn't in the hay. It was in manure and it had been in the manure pile for years. The, man the manure was old and I had put it in the greenhouse the year we built the greenhouse, which was three years ago. And it still this year was affecting the tomato plants. It didn't kill them. They came through it, but it's still, I can see the damaged leaves on those plants. So that herbicide, it scares me so much because of course the manufacturers like it's fine. It's safe. But I'm like, what is it doing to the microorganisms? Because it's staying there forever. Like it eventually will go away, but it's just so long lasting. And I'm like, we're taking this resource manure, which is beautiful and life-giving and we're poisoning it. And it just, it makes me angry, honestly. But yeah, it's been a trial. Oof. It's really alarming to me. And what is the name of this chemical? I know it, but not off the top of my head. Yes. So the brand name, one of the, well, there's many. One of the brand names is Grazon. That's the most common one. And, but the category and what you'll hear it most commonly referenced online is it's aminopyrrolid is a category of chemicals or persistent herbicides and other names. So if you Google that, you can find all kinds of information and pictures. I have them on my blog too, of what the leaves look like, because it doesn't kill the plants, it affects their uptake of nutrients and how they grow. And so the leaves get like gnarly and thickened. It's really bizarre, but the plant won't die. It's just, yeah. And it only affects broadleaf. So it won't hurt grass, but your tomatoes, your cucumbers, your squash, they don't do well with it. It's on my radar again, because we just changed our source of hay and I want to call that guy and, you know, ask him about it. But people don't like you to ask those things. They do not. No, they don't. They get offended really easily, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, before it was, you know, our neighbor was doing the hay and we knew we knew what he used and everything. It was all okay. But anyway, I was curious about that. And I'd seen you mention it again recently. So it's 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 really interesting thing. It's a bummer. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to leave with the audience or what do you want listeners to most understand about what you do or maybe about the book that just came out since that's what you're promoting. Anything you want to leave with us, what you want people to most understand about what you do. I think if people want to follow in our footsteps at all, I think the biggest way to do that, regardless of where you live or what your property looks like, is just commit to taking action. Messy, imperfect action will get you so far. And to take action before you're ready, don't feel like you have to over-prepare. But I think that's the biggest thing I see. Stopping people when they're like, I want to have your life, but I don't know how to get it. I'm like, just start somewhere and you'll learn as you go. And that's kind of the secret weapon, I think. That's wonderful. Love it. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for having me. It was so good. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I just enjoyed it so much meeting you and your big fan here. So thanks, Jill. Thank you for following along. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. 
You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.